One of the major dividing lines between various end times views is the millennial kingdom, which is a period of time where Jesus is ruling as king. But is this period of time a future physical reality, or is it a spiritual reality that's already unfolding before our eyes? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander and I'm your host today. Thanks so much for being with me. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so. And do so on my website because you never know where these platforms will go and what they'll do. You can do that at danceoflife.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. We are on part seven of the end times series that we're doing on a variety of end times topics. And so far we've been talking about a lot of things incrementally building up to the point that we're we're going to make today, which is when is the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom, if you've been with us since the first episode, if not, that's okay. But the millennial kingdom is one of the major dividing points between various end times views. Now, in the first episode, we outlined those views, different you know, understandings of the timing of this millennial kingdom. But that's pretty much the main dividing line, which is when is this period of time when Jesus is supposed to rule? Is it in the future? Is it a physical reign? Is it now? Is it a spiritual reign that's unfolding? Is he ruling from heaven? Is he going to rule on earth in Jerusalem? These types of questions divide people in the end times discussions and eschatology more than probably most topics. And so we've been leading up to this point with a lot of other important topics that help to answer this question, that support basically the conclusion we're going to come to today. So let's review that really quick. If you haven't joined us yet, I highly recommend going and watching the previous episodes or listening to them because they're very detailed and they're designed to build up to a particular point. And again, it's not my goal with the series is not to, you know, have you identify as one end times view or versus another where they, oh, I'm a post-millennial or I'm an amillennial or whatever. That's not my goal at all. In fact, I don't really have a label for my end times view. I believe that I'm trying to be as accurately representing what the Bible teaches. Of course, we all believe that, but Ultimately, there is no one-size-fits-all. There's no label that you can call yourself that fits everything correctly, because as you saw from the first episode, they all have some problem with them. And so the goal here is not to say, oh, you're this now. It's really to arm you with knowledge and common sense, really, in studying the Word so that you see what the Bible truly says, because there are so many opinions, and really what it boils down to is deception. There's a lot of deception coming, And we are in the end times, obviously. We're in the end of days. We're in the last 11th hour. And the deception is only going to get worse. And so that's really what it's all about. Don't be deceived. You know, Matthew 24, one of the most famous end times chapters where Jesus is warning us about the end times, he deceives it, or he he begins it with the word, do not do words, do not be deceived. See that, to, see that nobody deceives you. And he mentions that several times about the, the dangers of deception. And so we have to be on guard because there's a lot of things probably coming in the next few months and the next few years, which will really deceive many people, especially if you don't study the, the Bible and the end times. It's going to seem like prophecies are unfolding. It's going to seem like maybe we're going into a golden age. Maybe we're going into a millennial kingdom. And that's really what it comes down to, is if you believe that there's a future millennial kingdom, which is what my goal in this episode will be to refute, 
and give you plenty of evidence and reasons why there's many problems with that. If you believe that, then you're setting yourself up for major deception. And I used to believe that too until I realized that I was wrong. And the Bible teaches something very differently than a future millennial kingdom. But this whole this whole topic of the millennial kingdom has had several subtopics, and we've covered those in previous episodes, which is the timing of Satan being bound. We found out that Satan was bound at the first coming of Jesus at the cross. Satan lost his power as the principality of this world. He lost his power over death. And we saw that there's no pre-tribulation rapture. Everything, Every time the Bible talks about Jesus coming back, it's a very obvious, huge event. The angels are the ones taking the believers into the sky and along with the people who are being resurrected. So yeah, we're going to go into the air, into the sky, but it's not going to be a secret event to leave some people behind and take others. So we saw there's no pre-tribulation rapture. There's no uh, binding of Satan in the future. It's already happened. We saw that Jesus has to be king. And this is probably the most important point that proves that the millennial kingdom is not a future reality, but it's something unfolding now. It's a spiritual reality. But we'll get into all that. But Jesus has to be king. If, he, if he's not king, he's not priest. See how that works? They, they have to happen at the same time. That was the major point from that episode. And again, if you haven't seen that, then I highly recommend you go back and review it because there's so much good stuff in there about what the Bible says. And we have to be studying these things because there's a lot of theories. You know, a lot of people say that Jesus has to come back to rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem, a physical, like a physical reality. But if that's true, that that means he's not king right now. And if he's not king, he's not priest, and therefore there's no gospel. So you see, there's there's very huge costs to these beliefs. And we have to always ask ourselves, what do, if I believe something, what does it say about Jesus if I believe this? And, you know, that's that's something we have to constantly prune our beliefs and test them with Scripture because there are many serious problems and, and conclusions and consequences that come from believing certain things. So, so far we've looked at all these different things, Jesus being king, um, Satan being bound, no pre-tribulation rapture. We even looked at Abraham's, uh, God's promises to Abraham and how all of those were fulfilled. And so the whole thing about dispensationalism, which relies on a future millennial kingdom. It relies on a pre-tribulation rapture. It relies on this idea that, you know, God has to fulfill certain things to the Jews in this thousand-year period. All that stuff was debunked because all the prophecies were fulfilled. Everything that God promised Abraham was fulfilled to the letter. And so if that's the case, and in the last episode we looked at the temple, the uh, third temple being built in Jerusalem, how the temple was always a spiritual reality. The temple is the body of Christ, which is also the body of believers, the church, the kingdom, which is what we'll look at in the next episode, but we're going to open that up today, which is the idea that the kingdom is a spiritual reality. But last episode, we looked at that. We looked at how the temple, all the apostles believed that the temple was a, the third temple or the, the temple that was prophesied to be rebuilt by the Messiah was a spiritual reality. And so if that's the case, then this whole physical stuff that's happening in in Israel, in Jerusalem, it is a very big carrot to distract you from deeper spiritual realities that are forming. And we'll uncover those realities as we go in this series. But it's a deception. 
And again, I highly encourage you to go watch last time's episode because there's a lot of interesting things there about the Third Temple being rebuilt, about all the people involved with that, and maybe what their agenda might be. But all these things come into play, and so we've set the stage now for this idea of the Millennial Kingdom. And so in this episode, we're going to answer the question, when did the Millennial Kingdom begin? It's in Revelation 20, and we'll read that in just a second. But the big question is, when did, when did the kingdom begin? And we'll also look at what Jesus himself and the apostles taught about the kingdom of God. Did they teach it was a future reality? Did they teach it was a spiritual reality already unfolding? We'll look at the number 1,000, which is very heavily tied into this whole idea of a millennial kingdom. And, of course, we're also going to look at the logical problems with a future millennial reign of Christ, which again is not true. It's not biblical. I used to believe that too. And many people do believe this. It's a very common belief, but just because something's common doesn't mean it's true. So let's jump into where we get this idea of a millennial kingdom. It's in Revelation 20 and it's basically this whole chapter between verses one through six and after that, it talks about the defeat of Satan and all this kind of other important context. But the main gist of this comes from verses 4 through 6. So we're going to jump to Revelation 20, verse 4. And it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be, the pre they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there you have it again. And so, the question is, you know, this this brings up a lot of things. We'll we'll spend the next episode also decoding some of these things like are there two resurrections, right? What's this idea with a first resurrection and then the another resurrection so the people who believe in a future millennial reign where Christ is reigning for literally a thousand years, they believe that there'll be a resurrection when Christ returns and then another resurrection after the thousand years. And so the problem with that is that everywhere where you look in Scripture for resurrection, for the second return of Christ, then all those things are happening at the same time. There is no other place other than Revelation 20, verses 5 through 6, where it speaks of this idea of a first resurrection. There are other hints, but this is the only place. And so the question is, is this really a physical thing going on, or is it a spiritual reality? And we'll look at that in the next episode. But a couple of introductory points to make. There's no other place in Scripture that describes a 1,000, literal 1,000-year period of physical reign of the Messiah. There's no other place. This is the only place. And we have to understand also that Revelation is a prophetic book. John, who wrote it, was an Israelite. He knew the Scriptures. He read Daniel. And so we'll look more into the parallels between the book of Daniel and Revelation in a future episode, because there are many, many parallels, and it's it's absolutely important to understand the book of Daniel so you understand the book of Revelation. Revelation cannot be read in and of itself. It has to be read 
in the context of so much prophecy. It's the last prophetic book. So it builds on a lot of things that we see in the book of Daniel and other places. And specifically, you know, you have things in the book of Daniel that are time-bound. They're time-specific prophecies. There's a 70-week prophecy, which is really, it's about 490 years prophecy of the Messiah. It predicts Jesus' life and ministry to the year. It's, it's exact. And you have other time periods, like 1260. The number 1260 appears in the book of Daniel many times in regards to the Antichrist power and other things going on with, with the believers. And so we see that number also echoed in Revelation. And so the question is this, if Daniel gives time-specific prophecies and Daniel unlocks this historical understanding of prophecy. Remember from the very first episode, and throughout we've talked about this, the difference between reading prophecy from a historical lens, which is not so often done anymore, because futurism, the idea of everything being pushed to the future, has really taken over. But the question is, where is futurism from? That's not the traditional perspective of the church. That was something that was turned turned up and created in the 1500s due, due to the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was began by the Jesuits to, to do exactly that, to counter the Reformation. Because why? Because everybody in the Reformation, all the Protestants recognized, all the leaders recognized that the papacy was the Antichrist power on the earth that fulfilled all of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And so that was a big problem. And so this idea of a futurist interpretation where everything is pushed to the future, where instead of spiritual realities, there's physical things like a physical temple, literally 1260 days instead of the days representing years. There's a lot of things we'll get into. But the point is that this futurist idea of prophecy is not only new, but it's from a very questionable source. Let's put it that way at best. And so we have to we have to question that. We have to use discernment. We know that from Psalm 10, one of the prophecies about the Messiah is that he has to rule amidst his enemies, right? And so if we put all this together now, if Daniel, if the book of Daniel, which we will get into, we're not going to get into it today, but we will get into it shortly in a couple episodes, it unlocks everything else. And if that's the case, and Revelation is read through the lens of the book of Daniel because there's so many parallels, it's obvious to anybody who can study the two parallel side by side, that John was echoing and bouncing off of and referencing a lot of the things that Daniel says and giving more, more color to them in some sense. But if that's the case, then all of this idea of a future millennial reign, physical reign, it follows in the line of everything else that we've talked about, which is that Satan is trying to get people to see only the physical world so that we can ignore and, and be deceived about the spiritual realities that are changing behind the scenes. And so as long as people are focused on Israel and what's happening in Israel and the temple and all these different things, they're missing the greater spiritual restructuring of the world to worship the beast, the true beast. And that's the papacy, and we'll get into that. But for the time being, we have to see that ultimately, if Christ is ruling amidst his enemies, and we know he's already king after the ascension, that's when the 
vision of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days was fulfilled. Remember, Jesus receives the kingdom when he comes to the Father, not before he's about to leave to come back to earth. And so, if that's the case, then he's already ruling, and it's true. He's ruling amidst his enemies. There are plenty of enemies, alive and well, and they will be until his return. So that makes sense. It doesn't make sense that he would return, destroy death through the resurrection, which is the last enemy, and then do what? Where, what enemies are left after God's wrath is poured out? It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. So... Remember all that. Keep that in mind. Remember also that Revelation is a highly symbolic book. It's a vision. John was receiving visions of things. Visions are symbolic. They're not literal realities. They're symbolic realities. When Daniel had visions, he imagined these horrible chimeric beasts, you know, leopards with wings and, you know, a beast with iron claws and all this kind of stuff. You know, so these are not literal things. These are symbols for political and spiritual realities that are happening. And so again, if there's all these things that are symbolic in Daniel, and Revelation plays off of that, and we can see that, and again, we'll look at that in a future episode, because there are a lot of parallels to review, which I won't get into. But if we can see that there's a lot of parallels, then it's very clear that Revelation is also talking in symbols when it's talking about beasts, Right? It's not talking about literal beasts when it's talking about, you know, the uh, the dragon being chained up. The, you know, in Revelation 20, where this passage is from, it also mentions a giant chain being thrown around the devil and, and you know, binding him up and putting him in the abyss. Now, is that, does that mean we're going to see a giant dragon floating around in the air and then there's a, a big angel that comes with a huge chain and throws it around his neck? No, of course not. These are spiritual battles, spiritual realities that are happening. And so... If we take a literal interpretation of this thousand-year reign, we're really pushing against the grain. We're, we're pulling it out of context, which is the context of a spiritual, symbolic text. It's a vision. All visions are symbolic. They're not about literal things. Because they have to encapsulate greater truths. If it's literal, you're really limiting yourself. Do you see how that works? The whole point of a vision with all these different things that John was seeing was because the spiritual realities that they represent are very complex. And so, of course, a vision where things are symbolic is going to be much more effective than if they were literal. And so, another thing to keep in mind is this. There's a lot of recapitulation throughout the Bible. Recapitulation as a thing, we talked about this in the first episode, is where there's something that's said and then it's reviewed or said in a different way a couple chapters later. This is very common. And when we talked about Satan being bound, we looked at the war against Christ, the Armageddon battle, which is talked about in Revelation 16, 19, and 20. So it's three different places in Revelation. Now, if you're reading Revelation literally and chronologically, like everything has to happen in order, like, you know, chapter 19 is after 16, so that doesn't make sense because then there's three Armageddon battles. But if you see that recapitulation was not only a common ancient Near East literary device. In fact, gosh, this is going to be a tangent, but I won't spend too much time on it. I have a whole episode on debunking this whole idea of a first earth age and, and two creation stories and three earth ages. And there's just a whole mess in the 
conspiracy world right now and all these alternative news places where they believe that basically Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 were separate creation accounts. I'm not going to get into this. It's a whole can of worms. You can check out that uh, study and episode on it, but it's very detailed. However, the point is this. Genesis 2 is a recapitulation of Genesis 1, just from a different perspective. Genesis 1 is like bird's eye view, everything's being created. Genesis 2 talks about kind of up close and personal with God creating man, and it's all about mankind. And so to think that these are two different creation accounts is really just ignorant because, first off, Genesis 2 doesn't have anything in it that would make it a standalone creation story. According to practically every creation narrative in history in that part of the world, the ancient Near East. And so that is something that happens from the very beginning, this whole idea of recapitulation, of reviewing, reviewing. And so what is Revelation 20 a recapitulation of? Well, it's a recap of Revelation 15. So if we jump to the text, and this is in verse 2, this is the seven angels and seven plagues. Verse 2 says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in, in their hands. And so this is a victory this is a victory image. There's a lot of this stuff throughout Revelation where John sees the victory, you know, he sees the struggle, he sees the victory. There's a lot of recapitulation. And so the point of all this is that we need context. Why did I give you all these things? Because con the conclusion is we need context. We can't just uh, automatically assume that John was meaning a thousand years, like a literal thousand year period, let alone a future thousand year period where Jesus has to reign as king, when he acknowledges Jesus as king already, and he acknowledges the kingdom already in other parts of Revelation, as we'll get to, and as we got to in the episode about Jesus being king. So with that in mind, let's jump to the word 1,000. Let's look at that and see what is what is this all about. Well, first off, the, the number 1,000 is used in a variety of different ways in different parts of Scripture. Now, there's a couple of places where it's used as literal, and so that's Genesis 20, verse 16. And so it says, To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So this is a very literal thing. We have no reason to believe that this verse is speaking of a spiritual reality. If we look in Ezra chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, we see another mention of a thousand. And this is and this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred temples of silver, and a thousand other vessels. So this is about the temple uh items that are basically going back to rebuilding the second temple. And obviously they're numbering the things that they had. Now, this these could be possibly like metaphorical in the sense of a great number, but in either case, it's it's talking about a physical reality. That This is pretty obvious. Now in Judges 15, verses 15 through 16, this is about Samson. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey heaps up upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have struck down a thousand men. Now again, these these now that I'm mentioning could be exactly a thousand, or it could be symbolic of 
complete, a lot, you know, a great number, that kind of thing. If we look in First Chronicles uh, chapter 29, verse 21, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord Yahweh, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord Yahweh, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, and with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So we have to keep in mind that a thousand people use numbers both literally and metaphorically, just like we do today. But a thousand is a cube of 10. So 10 represents completeness. And when you multiply it by three, which is also another sort of biblical completeness type of number, then you get a thousand. And so a thousand could mean, it could be literal or it could be metaphorical. But the point is that all of these so far have been talking about physical realities, right? Physical things that are happening. When Samson kills some, you know, a bunch of people, it could have been a thousand people or it could have just been a lot of people that he killed. In either case, he killed a bunch of people. That's the point. It's a physical, it's reporting a physical thing. It's not a vision. It's not a symbolic uh, metaphor of anything. It's really just a physical reality it's reporting. But now we have several times in other places in Scripture where the, the word a thousand or the number one thousand is used metaphorically and spiritually. So if you look at De- Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So in this case, it's it's talking about a thousand generations. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that once you reach the the thousandth and first, God has his mercy, God's mercy has like run out? Of course not, right? So it's not... It's obvious from the context. The point is this. The context here determines what this number means. In this case, it doesn't mean literally a thousand generations and then the Lord's mercy is up. That's it. You've you've cashed out. No, it just means practically forever. Like he's going to he's going to be merciful for a thousand generations. Like that's such a huge number that it's might as well be forever. That's the really the point is the greatness of God's mercy. And then if we look in Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now again, I'll ask you this. If you read this literally, which dispensationalism does, if you're looking just at physical things without any shred of spiritual truth, well, how would you read this? But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. So thousands, how many people are on the planet? Or on the earth, I should say, because I don't believe in a planet. But how many people are on the earth? It's more than a, th- a couple thousand, that's for sure. There's billions of people. So does that mean that God only loves a few thousand? Obviously not. So this is about how much God's love extends to so many people, how merciful God is. That's what it's about. It's compare and contrast. He visits Revenge on the third and fourth generation, but then if you obey and you listen to him, he's merciful for thousands of generations. You know, it's, it's a compare and contrast, not a literal thing, but a compare and contrast to show God's mercy and God's wrath. If we look in Psalm 84, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Again, the number thousand here is used as a comparative 
metaphorical number. It's a spiritual meaning. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Is he, is he actually equating numerical days and saying, you know, if I spent a thousand days, which would be a little over three years, you know, it wouldn't be the same as spending a day, 24 hours with God. I mean, he's not doing that. It's just a metaphor. A thousand is, is a great endless number. Like no amount of time I could spend with anybody else would equate to just spending even a day with you, God. That's what he's saying. And again, in Psalm 90, verse 4, it's a pretty common one. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. What is this talking about? Now, in that episode I mentioned briefly where I debunked this whole idea of the first earth age, this is one of the verses that they use to say that, you know, all the creation days were a thousand days long. And again, I don't want to get into this because it's such a such a mangled topic, but very much proof that the days aren't a thousand years long, the creation days, is that Adam was created on the sixth day. How long did Adam live? Adam lived to be 900-something years old. He was under a thousand years old. So if he rested, do the math, this is very simple. If he was created on the sixth day, if Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, and they rested with God for an entire day, if that was a thousand years, and then Adam died at 900, that doesn't work out. Adam would have had to die over a thousand years of age, but he didn't. And so, and there's other reasons why the days are not a thousand years, but people use this phrase right here, Psalm 90 verse four, to argue that they were a thousand years and there's a secret earth age that we don't know about and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing, you're missing the whole point. This whole phrase is not about for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday in the past. Like it's not about a literal equating of God's time to a thousand years. It is saying that God is timeless. God's always been around, and we can't even imagine that, to, to not have been created, to live forever, to be everywhere. These things are very transcendent, and so it's a way for us to kind of picture that, but it's not a literal understanding. It's a figurative understanding of a thousand. And the last one that I'll quote is this, 2 Peter 3.8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Again, is this talking about some sort of numerical equating of God's time and how he experiences time? No, it's trying to understand God's timelessness using the limitations of language. A thousand years is but a day, and a day is but a thousand a day is like a thousand years. You know, that seems like an oxymoron, it seems like a paradox. And that's the point. God is transcendent. We can't understand that, and so we try to put it in these languages you know, languaged type of things that are very poetic, but ultimately these are metaphors. These are symbolic. So one more thing for you to consider in Revelation 20. Now, if we go back to that and we look at the word thousand, we're going to look at, at through the King James, the advanced version where that gives you the Greek words, but he bound him for a thousand years. This is verse two. The word there is chilioi. I'm pronouncing it right, chilioi, chili, chilioi, almost like chili oil, but chilioi. Now, chilioi is a plural, okay? So this is very important. This is also used in that, that verse we just quoted, which is Peter 2 Peter verses, um, chapter 3, verse 8. A day with the Lord is at a thousand years, chilioi, and a thousand years is as one day. So what does this actually mean? This means that 
the translation is leading people astray when they think that this is a literal thousand years. Because first off, this is plural. This is thousands. It's a plural of thousand, thousands years. And so now the whole understanding of it as being thousands of years is this endless time period that's unimaginable. That's why it's plural, because the point is spiritual. It's symbolic. It's not literal. And so it can't be a literal period of time because the plural, or I should say the word for thousand, is not thousand, like singular. It's plural, as in thousands. So this means that the whole thousand-year period is not a literal period of a thousand years in Revelation because of all the context we just read. Remember that Revelation is a, it's a vision. It's a symbolic book. It's, it's an end times book. It's apocalyptic literature. So there's a lot of symbol. There's a lot of parallelism. You have to understand the context that John was writing from. Again, he knew the scriptures. He knew Daniel. And that's why Daniel is so key to understanding Revelation because people jump into Revelation. They jump into it literally and they read it without any context both ignoring that it's a vision that's symbolic and ignoring the fact that it builds off of Daniel and other other texts that are very important. So what do we make of this? Well, the point is that a thousand in most places, unless the context is very obvious, like some of those things we saw with the temple items or you know the thousand pieces of silver, they're not talking about physical realities. Most of the time, they are talking about spiritual realities, especially when it has to do with God. It's using a number that we can't really even fathom, thousands of years, thousands of generations, to magnify and try to put God's infinite mercy into a box that we can understand. That's what really it's, it's happening in Scripture. Numbers are used metaphorically. Right? We use numbers metaphorically too. I mean, think of, for example, when you say, oh, I went to the, the DES or I went to the doctor and I waited for a million years. Well, did you actually, if somebody read that and said, oh man, he must be really old. Well, obviously not because we don't live a million years. But we know that that's not literal because it's a figure of speech. Million years. Or if I should say, that took forever. You took forever at the store. There's a lot of times when the Bible uses forever as a metaphor, not to, to mean literally eternity. Remember when we talked about as a circumcision forever in the previous episode on spiritual things and how all this stuff with the third temple is just nonsense, it's misinterpretation, because all these things that were in the Old Testament were supposed to be shadows and types for future spiritual realities. So when you hear in Scripture saying a circumcision forever, does it mean forever circumcised? Well, no. First off, you don't live forever. It's not talking about that. It just means for as a permanent like rule for the time or as a consistent rule. The context determines the meaning of the words used. And so it, it's not always when we see these types of things like forever or a thousand or thousands of years, it's not always talking about a literal period of time. You know, like when, when it says the uh, the fire from Sodom and Gomorrah, the smoke went up forever and ever into the sky. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, you can go there right now. There's no smoke. People have found sulfur balls, but there's no smoke there. And so that's not what the Bible means when it says forever and ever. 
And so again, this is this is something you have to watch out for. You have to open your eyes and read spiritual things. You have to read sim- the symbolic nature of these texts if they're end times texts. And always you should use context because even with, for example, the Samson thing, it probably wasn't literally a thousand people. It was probably a lot of people. Maybe it was more than a thousand people. You know, that's that's the point. You have to be open to that. So if this is not in the future, if this has so far hopefully has been able to cast some doubt for you, some healthy doubt on this idea of a future millennial reign of Christ, because again, Christ is ruling as king right now. He has to be. But with all these things, if this has cast a little doubt on that, if it's not in the future, when did the millennial reign begin? That's the question. And that's what we need to answer today. And so the follow-up question is, where did the apostles teach us that? What did they say? What did Jesus say about the kingdom? Did they teach an imminent kingdom? Did they teach a spiritual kingdom? And the answer is, yes, they did. Now, if we look at the apostles, for example, John the Baptist, he wasn't an apostle. But he was part of Jesus' ministry and plan. And in Matthew 3, verse 2, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it was an imminent idea for John the Baptist, and John the Baptist anointed Jesus. Now, if we look in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, where Philip was preaching, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip was preaching about the kingdom. He wasn't just preaching about Jesus or the gospel. He was preaching about the kingdom. That was part of his preaching. The kingdom and the gospel was part of the whole deal. If we look in John, John the Apostle now, the one who wrote Revelation, and, and this is what I mentioned earlier, that you he can't have written that there's a future millennial reign of Christ when, for example, in Revelation 1, the very first chapter, greetings to the seven churches. John to the seven churches, this is verse 4, that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who has from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is God, is eternal, he's always been around. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. How can he be ruler already if he has to be king in the future? That doesn't make sense. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Look at this. This is made. Uh, made is a past tense word. Made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of these things are past tense. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You can't be the ruler of the kings of the earth. The king of kings, basically, that's what it's saying, without being king. You can't have already made a kingdom if the kingdom is sometime in the future. Do you see how all that works? So we have to start questioning this idea. Now, what did Jesus say? That's an even more important thing, right? Well, in Matthew 4, let's look at a couple verses where Jesus is talking about the kingdom. In Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus ministers to the great crowds. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The gospel of the kingdom So the gospel and the kingdom are one and one. Luke 
chapter 9, verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So this is when he sends out the 12 apostles. So what did he send them out to do? To proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, think about it this way, logically. Did, did Jesus say, listen, guys, you need to go and proclaim that it's going to happen in thousands of years from now where I'm going to come back and reign on earth? Is that, is that the, the kingdom that they were preaching? No, they were preaching an imminent kingdom. The kingdom of God is upon you. It's here. It's coming. Repent and believe the gospel. That was the whole shebang. That was all tied together. So it's only until very, very later on when this whole futurist idea came around that the kingdom and the gospel are separated. See how that works? Let's look in later in Luke in verse 60. This is chapter 9, verse 60. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Again, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's an imminent thing. Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Heal the sick in it, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. Again, an imminent thing. It didn't say the kingdom of God has come or will come near you in thousands of years when you're going to be resurrected. No, the kingdom of God has come near you. So why is this important? When they heal the sick and God's power is displayed, the Holy Spirit's power is displayed, the kingdom of God has come near you. Do you see the connection? The kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they're tied together. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, Jesus begins his ministry. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what we just quoted. The time is fulfilled. Now, this is a reference to Daniel 70, 70th week or 70 weeks prophecy. Futurism believes that the 70th week is some point in the future, but it's not. The 70th week was fulfilled by Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah that the 70th week is talking about. The whole point of the prophecy was to, to warn people in advance several hundred years about when the Messiah would come. And Jesus fulfilled it to the letter. And so when he says the time is fulfilled, it's like, that's it. <laughs> I'm here. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand. That's an imminent statement. It's not a future reality, or I should say at least a long-term future reality, thousands of years in the future. Mark chapter or Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus sends out the 12 apostles again in Matthew and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's an imminent statement. He's telling them to say, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. Like it's it's right around the corner. It's not thousands of years from now. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, he gives the keys to Peter. I will give you the key. This is verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is an important point about this. He's going to give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's the apostles. But it's assumed it's during their lifetime. Do you see how that works? He's not he's not saying I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, you know, 2000 plus years from now when you get resurrected and then we're all reigning together. That doesn't make any sense. 
considering the context of everything we've just covered. It's, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, as in, this is happening, as like I've been talking about. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, when Pentecost happened, that's when all these things that Jesus is talking about were fulfilled. But in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, we read an important statement about the law and the prophets. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. This is Jesus speaking. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So what is he saying here? That the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the final prophet, basically, because the prophets would always anoint the kings. And John the Baptist anointed Jesus, who was the Messiah, who is the king. See how all that works together? But this is a this is a very important point. Look what he says again. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. The, the gospel and the kingdom are tied together. When the gospel came, so did the kingdom. Since John, as in since Jesus got anointed and began his ministry, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is a spiritual reality that we get to be adopted into because of Christ's work on the cross. A kingdom that is decentralized, that has a spiritual king, that has no borders, can never be destroyed. We have brothers and sisters. We have the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. That's the good news. And you're saved from the wrath that is to come by being in the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a spiritual reality. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, we see again this idea that the message and the kingdom are the same, are one and one. They're all tied together. Verse 19 in chapter 13, this is Matthew 13, 19. The parable of the sower explained. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So Jesus is explaining the parable. And he, again, he unites the kingdom to the word. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, could have said the word of the gospel, but he said the word of the kingdom. What's the word of the kingdom? Well, it's obvious. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's all the same. So again, gospel and kingdom being imminent are together. This is also another proof, by the way, against dispensationalism, that somehow the Jews have a separate plan of salvation. Well, in Luke 16, 16, we just read that there is no separate plan of salvation for anybody. Up till the Messiah, there was the law and the prophets. That was all supposed to point people to the Messiah, the Jews especially, obviously, right? But then after that, the time was fulfilled. That's it. Since then... It's the word of the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. It's the gospel. There is no other plan of salvation. And so these things should really question, should make you question dispensationalism or anybody who is teaching that to you because it's a false theology. It was built by Jesuits to take the attention off the papacy and the Vatican and put your attention on physical things in the future that haven't happened yet while the snake slithers around and regains its power as the Bible foretells. Now, in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, 
we see that Jesus says something very interesting about the timing. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Keep in mind these words. These are very important words. So he's making a statement about the timing of the kingdom, that it's going to be within the some people's lifetimes. They're going to see the kingdom come with power. They're not going to taste death until that happens. Now, is this talking about a future millennial reign? Well, obviously not, because people don't live that long. So it must be something else. When The question we should ask is, what's the power that's going to come and, and announce the kingdom? Well, the power is the power of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, and we'll read into that. But the question is this. Is this talking about not taste death as a literal thing for literal time periods, or is this a spiritual reality that they're going to see the kingdom come into their lives while they're still alive in this generation? I think that makes more sense, and it should be obvious, because all the other verses speak of an imminent thing. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is coming near you. The word of the kingdom is the gospel. All these things are imminent things. Now, even after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, Jesus spoke of the kingdom. He says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, the, the apostles still thought of a physical reality. This is, they made the same, this is dispensationalism in one verse. This is Judaism today in one verse. They are lusting after physical signs and physical wonders when instead they have the beauty of a, of a spiritual reality, a spiritual king. They want to see physical kingdoms and physical realities. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's that power again. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, okay, let's put this together. The power is the power of the Holy Spirit. When the power comes, so does the kingdom. So now Jesus is telling them, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, obviously within their lifetimes, happening imminently. This is after the resurrection. And it's going to begin in Jerusalem. That's where this is all going to happen. Now, if we look in Acts 2, the next chapter, all the events that happened with Pentecost and everything surrounding that fulfill the words that Jesus spoke. Now, if we look in Acts, for example, chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, it fulfills this idea that it was going to be not many days after. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. This is what we just read. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them not many days from now. Well, what happened in Acts 2? Pentecost. So when Jesus talked to them in Acts 1, after the resurrection and before Pentecost, it wasn't many days as in thousands of years. It's literal days. In this case, it's literal days, right? And again, this is not a vision. This is an actual 
physical thing that's happening. Jesus resurrected. He's talking to them. It's a literal time period of not many days. So you see how context is so important? But Acts 2 fulfilled that. The Pentecost experience fulfilled that. The Holy Spirit descended. Great power. A lot of people were converted. People were The apostles were speaking in tongues. It was a huge event, like 3,000 people converted. And so that was great power that entered the world through the Holy Spirit. And that's when it began. Now, we know Jesus ascended on the clouds. And we know from Daniel, and we talked about this before with, with the whole Jesus is King episode, where the scene in Daniel where the Son of Man is on the clouds and only God has that ability. It's always associated to God. And so when the Pharisees you know, interrogated Jesus and he said that you're going to see me on the clouds, they tore their robes, they basically accused him of blasphemy. Well, <laughs> Jesus wins because he ascended and he fulfilled that prophecy in Daniel about coming on the clouds and presenting himself before the Ancient of Days. All of that was fulfilled already in the past, according to us, because we're in the future. If it was fulfilled at the ascension. And so if, if that's the case, then he's ruling it as king. And that makes sense because the kingdom began at Pentecost when Jesus ascended and went to the right hand of the Father and became king, was crowned king. The Holy Spirit could come. It was He had to go so the Holy Spirit could come. See how that works? And so they traded places in a sense. Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came and came upon the church and, and created the church and helped bring a lot of people to the church that day. And from then on, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But Jesus is king at the same time that the Holy Spirit came down and Pentecost started the church. The kingdom of God came with power. Do you see how all this is coming together? It all makes sense. Now we know that, again, he went to the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, we confirm this, but I'll read it again. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has, been, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now again, this is two things here. Jesus is sitting at the right hand. We know that. There's dozens of verses about that. But it's also this idea is that sit until I make your enemies your footstool. He's ruling amongst, amongst his enemies, just like Psalm 10. And so is that going to be a future reality after death has been defeated? I don't think so. There's no enemies left after Jesus returns. When Jesus returns in power and great glory, there's not going to be anything left. The devil's going to be destroyed. Death will be destroyed through the resurrection. All the wicked will be destroyed through God's wrath and all the bold judgments in the end of days. So there's nothing left. You have to think about that. But there are enemies right now, right? There's plenty of them. You can just turn on the TV and you can see all the enemies of Christ just parading around like that recent carnival parade in Brazil where they got warned with a lightning strike. They didn't listen. They proceeded with their satanic parades. And what happened? Well, a lot of people got flooded and died and lost their things. And yeah, I do think it was the hand of God because they were blaspheming God openly and proudly and sinning with a high hand. They didn't care. 
And so the enemies of Christ are everywhere. And that makes sense because he's ruling amongst his enemies. Now, we also know from John 16, 7 that when Jesus goes, the timing of Jesus leaving is also the timing of the Holy Spirit arriving. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, this is verse 7, that I go away. For I do not. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So again, there's that relationship and timing of Jesus going, sitting at the right hand, and the Holy Spirit coming. So there's there's proof. It's like a double proof. The Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost was proof that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father and he's king. He's ruling because he ascended. So they work together. Now, Pentecost fulfilled a feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament, and it's the feast of first fruits of, of the wheat harvest. Now, there's two first fruits there's a barley first fruits, and then there's a wheat first fruits. Jesus fulfilled the barley first fruits. And again, all these feasts, there's a whole series of studies on these, and there's a lot of great people that study these things. Mike Winger is a pastor that has a series on typological studies in the Old Testament. I recommend it. He does a great job. But he has an episode on how uh, the fall feasts, and there's a lot of people that talk about these things, but the fall feasts typify, and so do the spring feasts, uh, fall and spring feasts typify Jesus' ministry. Now, some people believe the fall feasts are end times related well, because Jesus has fulfilled all the spring feasts. You know, I, I'm sure it is. I'm probably not going to get into that in this series. However, the first fruits was fulfilled at the resurrection. The first first fruits, let's put it that way. And then Pentecost, which is the sort of second first fruits of the wheat harvest, Again, these have to do with harvesting, harvest of souls. That's been so many par- parables on the harvest, on harvesting souls and throwing away the weeds versus wheat and the tares. All these things have been talked about by Jesus many times in the Gospels. And so this second harvest, the wheat harvest, was Pentecost. And that's when the Holy Spirit came. And it was it was fulfilling that Old Testament picture of the harvest. Now, the Holy Spirit came with power. We know that from Acts chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. The coming of the Holy Spirit, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's a whole thing in here about tongues and how people today with the whole hyper-charismatic movement, they're speaking and blah, blah, blue, blue, blah, you know, all these types of gibberish. This is not the kind of tongues that people were speaking. I can prove it to you. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. So a lot of different nations. And at this sound, the multiple came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. Isn't that interesting? So why is that so important? Because when speaking in tongues happened in the Bible, tongues were actual real languages. It was a supernatural event where, you know, they were speaking various languages. And people in Jerusalem at the time, that were from all different kinds of nations, they heard their languages being spoken probably heard the gospel being preached in their language, like, whoa, what's going on? It was a supernatural event. It wasn't 
the apostles going blah 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 glug 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 glug, you know, and just making up sounds like people do today is a mockery of speaking in tongues. I have yet to see any hypercharismatic actually speak in a foreign language that they do not know, like German or Arabic or Chinese randomly coming out of your mouth perfectly with perfect grammar and pronunciation. That's speaking in tongues. It's not making up gibberish and going into the stream of consciousness almost like you're possessed kind of thing. This is nonsense. And so we have to run everything through Scripture. Test the spirits, my friends. You have to test the spirits. But that's besides the point. The Holy Spirit came with power. That's what Jesus said. That was fulfilled on Pentecost. And so therefore, the kingdom, which is also the church, which is also the body of Christ, the temple, all of that began when the Holy Spirit came with power, which happened at Pentecost. Now, remember, he also said that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. All that is tied to Jerusalem. We know that it happened in Jerusalem. And we have proof of that from Acts 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under the heaven. We just read that. And also in verse 14, where Peter's sermon uh, is in Jerusalem. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So they were witnesses to the word of God, to the gospel in Jerusalem. That's where it started. That's where the kingdom started. And, of course, many people were still alive and saw Jesus do miracles. They saw the glory of God happening. We know that from Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching to people that saw Jesus' works and miracles. And now they're witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they're witnessing the kingdom of God with power. Do you remember when he said that? Mark 9, chapter 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When did the kingdom of God come? With the power of the Holy Spirit. When did that come? At Pentecost. The people who were there in Jerusalem had seen Jesus do miracles, had heard of him, and now they witness firsthand the power of God through the Holy Spirit, through the events that happened, <clears throat> excuse me, at Pentecost. So, conclusion, lots of conclusions. Well, the kingdom would come when the power would come. Remember that. The power would come when the Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit has to come when Jesus leaves and he ascends because he's going up to reign as king, king of kings, and the Holy Spirit comes to do the work through the gospel, through everything that he does. So all of that was fulfilled in the past long ago. Now, all of this was about three years after all the things that we read during his ministry where he said the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So there was an imminence during his ministry where he said multiple times that we saw the kingdom of God is here, it's among you, it's, you know, it's at hand. And then a couple years later, boom, there it is. Pentecost happens. So that makes sense as opposed to a futurist reading of thousands and thousands of years in the future. It doesn't make any sense. Pentecost was the first fruits harvest of the wheat harvest, remember there's two first fruits that fulfilled the Old Testament shadow and type, 
And again, remember all the parables about the wheat and the tares and the harvest, the harvest of souls, the reapers at the end of the age, all that stuff is, is talking about the same thing that, that being born again and being saved is a harvest. Jesus is harvesting the seeds that he planted. The parable of the sower is about the, par- the seeds that were planted, and very few will be saved. If you think about the, the majority of people that have ever lived, most of them are not saved. And that's true if you look at the parable of the sower. Only 25%. Now, I'm not saying that's literally the number of people that are going to be saved, but in the parable of the sower, only a fourth of them were saved because they grew roots and were able to withstand tribulation and not get distracted, not get choked by the cares of the world and all these other things. Now, Jesus also assumed the right-hand position when he ascended. And what that means is, and this has been testified throughout different places. We looked at this in the episode on the king, uh, Jesus is king that Jesus is already king, and therefore the kingdom has already come. Now I want to take a break and look at the Lord's table, this idea of the Lord's table, and how that relates to the idea of the kingdom. Because the Lord's table is, again, there's a lot of things that are mentioned that are synonymous. The kingdom, the body of Christ, the temple, the church, all these things are related they're all, part, they're all talking about the same spiritual reality of communion with God. Now, if we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were baptized and they were continuing to break bread as a tradition. The fellowship of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So this was breaking bread and being at the Lord's table. This was a, a big idea for the early church. Now, if we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 21, it reads, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. We, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is all spiritual language. The table of the Lord is a system. It's a, it's a reality. It's the reality of the gospel. It's being born again. It's having fellowship. It's finding yourself in the representation of these things, the body of Christ. It's doing breaking bread as a remembrance, right? Again, this is why all these religions today, like Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, the transubstantiation, this is a literal reading of something that was meant to be spiritual and much more interesting and much more profound, as opposed to literally sacrificing Jesus on the altar every Sunday. That's what they're doing, which is a shame. But these are spiritual things. The table of the Lord was a spiritual thing. Breaking bread is is equivalent to the Lord's table. Now, if we look at all of this now with that context at Luke chapter 22, verse 28 through 30, where Jesus talks about being at his table, 
Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. There it is again. He's assigned to them a kingdom in the present moment, not in the future. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Boy, there's a lot in that. Eating and drinking at his table is equated to being in the kingdom. We know that the kingdom is a spiritual reality. So being partakers of the Lord's table, being at the Lord's table, is fellowship. It's a, it's a symbolic idea of being in fellowship and in relationship with Christ. It is a spiritual reality. Now, the other thing to pay attention is this. Sit at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What is, does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound like Revelation 20 verse 4 where he says, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting parallel. But what Jesus says in Luke 22 is a present reality. It's a present thing. He's going to assign them a kingdom just like he was assigned a kingdom. When does he take over the kingdom? When he ascended. And then he gives them the responsibility of carrying that out after Pentecost. It all ties together. It's, it's very straightforward. If you're looking with spiritual eyes at spiritual things, if you're looking at physical things, you're going to get confused very quickly because and make up all kinds of strange theories that don't make sense ultimately and that cost very heavily in our theology. Again, if Jesus is not king right now, then God help us all because then there's no gospel. But thank God that's not true. So conclusion is this. They ate at the table when the kingdom happened, right? When did the kingdom happen? At Pentecost. So they ate at the, they came to the Lord's table at Pentecost. Now, eating is a metaphor throughout Scripture for partaking, right? It's a spiritual thing. Eating has been used throughout Scripture as a spiritual metaphor for partaking of something, right? When you eat of the Word, right? When you feed on the Word. You're not eating your Bible pages, obviously. Hopefully not. You're consuming it spiritually. You're putting it into your mind, your heart. You're, you're changing your internal idea of things, your understanding. You're, you're feeding off of it. You're getting life off of its spiritual life. That's what it's talking about. So the kingdom began at Pentecost. Sitting at the Lord's table begins at Pentecost because then you can become a member of the kingdom. How do you become a member of the kingdom? By being born again. When you're born again, you partake of the Lord's table, which is being in the kingdom. All of that is the same reality. Jesus is using different pictures to paint different angles of the same thing. And so do the other apostles. Now, when Peter's sermon happened in Acts 2, and he goes over you know, the summary of Jesus' ministry and life, he mentions and makes a point that Jesus is Lord and King right now while his enemies are being put under his feet. This is in Acts chapter 2, verse 30 through 36. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, this is David, speaking of David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, there it is again, 
He's at the right hand right now. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We read this verse previously. But verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he's reigning at the right hand, as Peter said earlier, that Jesus raised up, and he's exalted at the right hand, verse 33. And this also coincides with the reigning under, reigning while his enemies are being put under his feet. You see how it all comes together? The spiritual, the millennial reign is right now. It's a spiritual reality. It's unfolding. And it ends when Jesus comes back and delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And then God is all in all. And the Trinity is reigning on earth. There'll be a new earth, new heavens, new Jerusalem. It's going to be amazing. Who knows how it's going to work? I'm sure it's going to be beyond anything we could ever imagine. But the triune God will reign on earth and be with man. It'll be a recreation of Eden, but probably much better. But at that point, that's just eternity. There's no thousand-year period. The, the long period of time, remember, again, it's a plural word when it's in Revelation, thousands. It's, a long, it's just a long period of time. And it is a long period of time. Since Christ has been on the earth, it's been 2,000 years approximately. And so we have to see these spiritual things. Now, a couple confirmations after, after Pentecost we can find in some of the letters and even John's revelation. In Colossians 1, chapter 13, I'm sorry, 1, verse 13 through 14, we're already in the kingdom. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did they get transferred to the kingdom if the kingdom is future? The answer is that the kingdom is already now, and it's a spiritual reality that you join by being born again. That's how you become part of the kingdom of God. So, you leave the power of darkness when you're born again. You get transferred into light, into the kingdom of God. It's an awareness change. It's a spiritual change. It's an internal change that happens. It's not, <clears throat> it's not a physical reality in the future. Now, there will be a physical reality. Again, where Jesus returns, he's delivering the kingdom. The millennial reign is, is to put all the enemies under his feet. That includes the final, you know, seven bold judgments and the destruction of the wicked and the destruction of the devil, the Antichrist system, when he returns. And then there's a new creation. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and the triune God reigns on earth forever and ever. And we get to worship him. What an amazing what an amazing end of the story. But in Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that we received a kingdom. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why can't it be shaken? Because it's spiritual. It's not limited by physical things. It doesn't have walls. It doesn't have anything physical. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is a letter that was written thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago. A little, just about 2,000 years ago. And receiving a kingdom, this is a present reality. They have already received it. 
Now, if the kingdom is a future reality, then what kingdom are they talking about? Is there two kingdoms? I don't think so. Again, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, vision of the Son of Man. If you know Daniel, then this is piggybacking that. It's, it's playing off of that. Because John was an Israelite that read his scriptures. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was exiled. But look at this. Your brother and partner in the what? Tribulation? So you're telling me the tribulation is not some future seven-year period? When Israel has to have their third temple and we're all raptured away and they're going to all come to Christ? That's nonsense. The tribulation has been going on since the devil lost his power. He was bound. Remember, he was bound at the cross. He lost his, he was kicked out of heaven. What happened as a result? He came down to earth. He was pretty mad. He looked to make war on the saints. He created his own false religion through the papacy. And has killed more believers than anybody in history. And deceived more people. And it will deceive people very soon here. Because things are moving in that direction. But that's been the tribulation. We've been in tribulation for the last 2,000 years. The tribulation is not some seven-year future period. It is an ongoing tribulation period because the devil knows his time is up and he's looking to kill as many people as possible for the testimony of Christ. And the important part of this, though, with our topic today is the kingdom. Your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Now, you tell me, does that mean that the kingdom is something he's talking about as a future reality? Or is it something that's already happened? The kingdom of God is here. That's what he's talking about. Now, there can't be two kingdoms. Either the kingdom of God has come or it'll be a future reality. It's not here and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and it's come near you. Oh, but then there's, you know, there's a millennial kingdom that's going to happen in the future where Jesus is going to reign even more for, while his enemies, whoever those are going to be, I don't know who's going to survive, are being put under his feet. Do you see how none of that makes sense? It really doesn't. So, thoughts on this. Jesus and the apostles both believed and taught that the kingdom was an imminent reality, an imminent kingdom. It was part of the gospel message. To enter the kingdom... You had to be born again. That's what it means to be at the Lord's table. To be at the Lord's table is to have fellowship with one another and also with Christ. Therefore, to be part of the kingdom, which means you're born again. Of course, to be born again, you need the Holy Spirit. And again, the Holy Spirit came when? At Pentecost. That's when people started becoming born again. Because a lot of people were converted at Pentecost, over 3,000. So, therefore... The kingdom, the millennial kingdom, began at Pentecost. That's the conclusion. Revelation 20 is a figurative text. It's talking about a spiritual kingdom. It's talking about a spiritual reality. The millennial reign of Christ is right now. He's reigning as king spiritually. And the period of time, the long period of time, remember thousands, it's plural, is between Pentecost and his second coming. 
once he comes back, death is defeated through the resurrection. That's the last enemy. He sets up shop, new creation, new Jerusalem, gives the kingdom back to the Father, and the triune God reigns through Jesus all in all for eternity. That's how this story ends. But we're living in the millennial kingdom right now, the time where Jesus is reigning to put his while his enemies are being put under his feet. And that is happening because ultimately once he returns, it'll be the final final push. The devil will be destroyed. The Antichrist power on the earth will be destroyed. All the Antichrist systems, all the people who've rejected Christ, they're going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be destroyed, including death through the resurrection. Remember, when Jesus returns, people are getting resurrected. That's the final enemy to be destroyed is death. So how can there be any more enemies if we're getting resurrected when he returns? So a couple summary points to wrap this up. And first thing I want to start with is this. There are some serious problems with the millennial reign being in a future situation, a future scenario. The first problem is that there is sin and death during this millennial reign. People who subscribe to this premillennialism and dispensationalism have to acknowledge that there are, is death during the millennial reign and there's sin. People are making mistakes because there are enemies that Christ has to rule under physically. So that means people are going to be sinning while Christ is physically present in his glorious form on the earth after the events in Revelation have taken place, after the bull judgments, after the mark of the beast. You know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies, while he's physically present on the earth in his glorified form, makes no sense. There could not be sin and death in the presence of God on earth. That's the whole point. When he returns, everything is redeemed. You know, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. When Christ returns, we get that inheritance. We get the eternal body. We get the eternal state. That's the inheritance. And so there's no death when he returns. Death is destroyed. So that's a huge problem for pre-millennialism. Another problem is that they believe that the millennial kingdom is going to have procreation, that some people are going to make it into the kingdom who weren't raptured but then came to Christ during the seven-year tribulation, which again, all this stuff is just misinterpreted scripture. But those people are going to have kids, and so those people you know, are going to be procreating. But we know from so many places that this is not true. Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So there's a generation that will not pass. First Corinthians, now he was talking about the siege of Jerusalem there, but there's also a shadow and type. Remember, physical, then spiritual. The judgment that happened on Jerusalem is a, is a physical reality that foretold a spiritual reality for the group of believers in the end of days. So there will be a generation that will not pass away. But in Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 52, we're told that we're transformed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's the seventh trumpet when Jesus returns. Everything lines up very nice and neat. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. So when Jesus comes back, seventh trumpet in Revelation, 
that's the final deal. Everybody's going to be, whoever's dead is going to be resurrected. Whoever's alive will be transformed. So why is that important? Well, in Mark chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There will be no procreation in heaven. There will be no more creating children. There will be no need for it. Everybody's going to be resurrected. The people who are still alive, the generation that will not pass, because there will be some alive people when Jesus returns, those people will be transformed. So all of this stuff about procreation during a millennial reign, a future millennial reign, it's nonsense. That's not true. Because we're going to have glorified bodies, and glorified bodies will not be procreating. Now, some tough questions for people who believe in premillennialism, even postmillennialism, but mostly premillennialism and dispensationalism. Here are some tough questions that you need to reconcile. Why would God have two types of people that he's saving? Again, there's only one plan of salvation, only one elect. Why would he treat some elect differently by rapturing them? And then others, he would just leave them in normal bodies and let them procreate and deal with death and dying during the millennial reign of Christ when he's physically reigning on earth in all his glory. That makes no sense. That is incredibly unfair, and that's not consistent with Scripture. Here's another question. If people die during the millennial kingdom, when are they going to be resurrected? Are there two resurrections of the righteous? Or is everything happening at the same time? The scriptures say there's only one resurrection of the righteous. There's not two. So we're going to look at this in the next chapter when we decode Revelation 20 when he's talking about the first resurrection. Because again, that's the only place that mentions such a distinction. So is he talking about something physical? Or is he maybe talking about a spiritual reality, a new birth where you're raised spiritually after having been dead to sin, after crucifying the flesh and being born again? I think it's the second one, and I hope that I'll make a clear case for that. But another question is this, how can the physical presence of God on earth in his glorious form, after the wrath has been poured out, after the judgments, after all that stuff, how can there still be sin? How can there still be death? How can there still be enemies? There really aren't. And if you're honest, you'll realize that that's nonsense. Because there can't be. And then again, why would, this is one that got me, why would Satan be released after a thousand years of Christ ruling on earth in his glorious form? Why would that be the case? Do you see how that doesn't make any sense? If there's nobody left, now the, the answer is this. The answer that most premillennials will give is that, oh, well, it's to, to tempt people and to prove that even in paradise, people make the same mistake. Even with God physically in front of them, they're still going to sin and you know it's going to vindicate God's character. Well, wait a minute. That already happened in the Garden of Eden. We, were, we had the presence of God. There was paradise and we still sinned. Why would God do that all over again? That doesn't make any sense. But you know what does make sense? Is that this is a spiritual reign and that Satan is released right before the end. And that time is now. We talked about that in the, the Binding of Satan episode. We're living in the end times where Satan has been released. And you can see very clearly, look around the world. It's very obvious for anybody without, with eyes to see. 
Satan has been released. And that means that there isn't that much longer to go. I don't know how much longer, but certainly not going to be, I don't think, hundreds of years. I think that our generation has a very likely possibility to see the return of Christ. Now, I hope that's the case. I hope that I'm alive to see it, but I also know that there's going to be a lot of craziness up until that day. So whatever it is, you know, we live for the Lord, we die for the Lord, it doesn't matter, we do it all for the Lord. But ultimately, we're living in that time period where Satan has been released. We're at the end. That makes the most sense. Not Christ returning, being in his glorious form, and then releasing Satan again to tempt people, that doesn't make any sense. So those are some tough questions. And what it really leads to is this, guys. Millennial kingdom as a future reality, that's not biblical. And it has some very serious theological consequences. In what it says about Jesus, and what it says about the gospel, in what it ignores about the gospel. Remember, the gospel and the kingdom were preached together. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The kingdom of here. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is the Holy Spirit changing hearts and creating new souls, you know, new new lives, being born again. So repent, join the kingdom, be part of the kingdom. It's here. It's time for the harvest. The elect will hear it. The people who were not meant to be saved will reject it and scoff and fight it. And that's been the case throughout history. But Christ is ruling right now. You have to keep that in mind. He is king and he's also priest. They have to happen at the same time. If he's not king, he's not priest, and therefore there's no intercession and no gospel. The the consequence with dispensationalism is that you don't have a priest because he's not king. The consequence of dispensationalism is that it puts your mind on worldly, physical things and you ignore greater spiritual realities, the importance of greater spiritualities and the importance of seeing things that you have to look at from a spiritual lens. The beasts in Daniel and Revelation are not people. They're spiritual, political powers like the papacy. But you're not seeing that if you're looking for a future individual person. Do you see how that works and how the sleight of hand is designed perfectly to distract you from the truth? It puts your mind on physical things. And so we have to not make the mistake that the apostles made very early on when they thought there was going to be a physical kingdom. They wanted a conquering Messiah. We have to make the we have to not make the same mistake that the Jews are making today when they're looking for a fleshly physical salvation. Remember the last episode. They're setting themselves up for a massive deception with this whole third temple thing, Abrahamic Accords, Abrahamic family house. All the stuff that's happening in the Middle East is leading towards a massive deception. So I hope you go check out that episode. But the millennial reign began when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, which is when he ascended, which is when he fulfilled the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel. Jesus gets the kingdom when he approaches the Father, not when he leaves to go there. That's what that vision states. And we'll get into more on that in a future episode. But the timing is when he comes before the ancient days, not when he's leaving to go to earth. Daniel prophesied four beasts, and these were all governmental powers, political powers. The fourth was Rome. He also prophesied the 70 weeks prophecy, which timed perfectly with that prophecy. I'll have a chart that I'm going to share with you guys that you can use. 
for free. You can just look at the different prophecies from both Revelation and Daniel and how they all tie them up because there's a lot of different prophecies and it's nice to see them all mapped out. So I'll share that with you. But those two things coincided. Jesus came during the fourth beast, during the Rome, the Roman rule. And he also ascended during the Rome. So therefore the kingdom began at his first coming. The kingdom came into the world of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, we see that. And it came through the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of these things have been prophesied. They all fit together very nicely. It's very easy if you see it for what it is, which is a spiritual reality. Now, some people say, and I'll leave you with this, that it doesn't feel like Jesus is king right now. It doesn't feel like it because there's, you know, the world is just so the way it is. It's so full of evil, right? Well, we're looking at worldly measures. That's why we feel that way. I struggle with this a little bit too. But remember, Satan is released right before the end. And I believe that we are living in the time where he's been loosed to deceive the nations at the maximum possible point to where they would join together to worship him and to go out in all-out war against Jesus at the Battle of Armageddon. And that's, that is a future reality. The Battle of Armageddon is a future reality. But we are under the workings of the devil right now where he's deceiving the nations and bringing them into a one-world government, one-world religion. That's obvious. And we'll be diving more and more into that in future episodes. But we need to look at spiritual things, not physical things. Devil worshiping before Jesus' life was all over the world. Up until Jesus' life and ministry, the devil was having a heyday with the world. But devil worshiping went underground. I mean, it's still there, but it had to go underground. A lot of people are learning now. You have the internet, you have podcasts, you have all kinds of things. People are running to and fro. Knowledge is increasing, just like the book of Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12. The gospel has gone throughout the whole world. The Christian court system using the Ten Commandments. Christians are the ones who started hospitals. That's been out throughout the world. People are coming to Christ every day from all walks of life. So the binding of Satan and the kingdom, all these things were spiritual realities. The full physical redemption of the earth isn't going to happen until Jesus returns. That's going to be the new heavens and new earth. But until then, we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual war. Remember, Christ is ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet amongst his enemies. So that means there's a spiritual war while he's reigning. And considering what we see, it's pretty obvious that's the truth. We are in the 11th hour, and there's a great falling away that will be happening. That's what the Bible says. There's going to be a lot of false converts. There'll be lawlessness, war, chaos, plagues, all kinds of different things to look forward to, right? But at the end of the day, we have a hope beyond understanding because we know that the words of God are true. We know that he is faithful, even when we're not faithful. And we know that he is coming soon. He really is. I truly believe that. So cling to the Lord, develop a habit of daily prayer, study to keep yourself approved, study these things, but don't get too obsessed with them. Know enough so you aren't deceived about what's coming down the pipeline. And I hope that I have armed you sufficiently with all these Episodes, they're on the longer end, obviously, but they're so detailed because ultimately I want you to really know your stuff. It helps to really dive in so that you aren't deceived, so that you have an answer when people scoff or question 
why you believe what you believe. And more importantly, that you aren't deceived. Because if there is a future false millennial reign that they're trying to put together, a counterfeit millennial kingdom with a counterfeit Christ, just think about the impact and how many people will worship the false Christ and believe that the golden age is here because their eyes are looking after physical things. And then the mark of the beast will go out and people will gladly take it because they think they're doing service to God. What a crazy thought. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but it could be possible. At the very least, it's a possibility. So we have to keep our eyes open. I hope that this has been educating for you. Next week, we'll look at um, Revelation 20 some more with things like the first resurrection and reigning on thrones and, you know, what do all these things really mean? You know, we have to decode these because if the millennial kingdom was a spiritual understanding, then what are some of those other things and what do they mean if we understand through a spiritual lens like the first resurrection? But we'll look at that next week. I hope this has been a blessing to you. Until next time, God bless and take care.